that's the fear I think for most people is that when you stop, it's gonna all mm. fall it's apart. Gone. Mm-hmm. Totally, and I think that's one thing I'd love to say on here is that you know if you take a few months out, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, if it's COVID good. showed us anything, well, we can yes, take so. months off. Hi everyone, I'm David Bosher. And I'm Sid Sharice. And you're listening to Destroy the Hairdresser, the podcast. Where we teach you to salon differently. So Sid, we have been telling all of our followers and listeners that if they want to make money behind the chair or in a salon, they've got to get rid of all of their retail, which I'm sure everyone thinks we're crazy for saying that. But tell them what we're doing. We are so excited to be partnering with Hair Story, who absolutely has one of the best affiliate programs in this entire industry. They are reimagining the way that we do hair. If you don't know what an affiliate program is, imagine making money from your clients who buy their products online. Hair Story has perfected this idea. Should we give them a free product? We should. Go to hairstory.com slash DTH to get your free pouch of new wash. I just got a new customized booking website and a free e-reader. That's genius. Yeah, Gloss Genius. Gloss Genius has some of the best customer service support in the industry. Not only that, but they also have the lowest processing fees in the industry at 2.6%, no hidden fees, and free same-day deposits because you know we're all about that money. Good morning, David. Good morning. Good morning. I realize, you know, not being in the studio and having yourself on video, mm-hmm. you, I don't know about everyone else, but I spend 90% of my time looking at myself and then trying to look at everybody else. And I just realized <laughs> that this morning I just look like Cynthia Nixon rolled out of bed. And you told me I'm wearing like a plaid jacket <laughs> and you told me I look like a hunter, a huntress. <laughs> you do. You have a little bit of a I'm hunter vibe. It. We both have a lesbian vibe going on. That's really yeah. what... <laughs> That's that's the theme of today's podcast. I love it. I'm so excited for today's topic because we are very open and honest with our lives, but we're talking about mental health today uh, in the industry. And I think that isn't talked about enough. And you and I are big advocates for medication. I am a huge advocate of medication. I'm diagnosed OCD. You have anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And I feel we both take medicine. And I feel like without spirituality and modern day medicine, we would not be able to run this company. (laughs) And therapy and lots and and lots of therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, for me, I was very anti-medicine, but it's changed my life. But we have a special guest with us that's going to be talking about their experience in mental health and their journey. And I'm just excited because it's rare to find people that are so open to talking about these types of topics. But we have with us editorial hairstylist and host of his own podcast, In Bed with Neil Moody. We have Neil Moody. Hi, Neil. Hello. How From London. <laughs> From London. From London. Yeah. And you're, you're how many? Six hours ahead of us? Five. Five, Five hours. Okay. Yeah. Yep. It's my mid-afternoon. Yep. I nice. love it. How's the yeah. future of today? Good? Yeah. (laughs) It looks bright and sunny over there. It's good. It actually, do you know what? It's surprisingly sunny. We've been having snow. So, um, but I've got my cup of tea and I'm ready. You're ready. Perfect. So, so Neil, tell us kind of before we get into the nitty gritty, I think people are always interested in 
a little bit of how you got started and who are you and how did you break into the hair world and and some of the projects that you have been working on. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. I began hairdressing when I was 16, uh, which is however many years ago, 37 years ago now. So Congratulations. Thank you. I'm working towards 40 years. You don't look a day over 30. Thank you very much. That's all the work I've had done. But I, <laughs> um, but yeah, I basically began when I left when I finished school, and I did an apprenticeship here in Britain. I'm from Birmingham, which is in the middle of England, and basically, I, that's where I did my apprenticeship. And then I moved to London when I was almost eighteen, and I carried on training here back here in London. And then when I qualified, I worked in various salons around central London and basically ended up after 10, well, sort of eight years, I ended up at the famous Tony and Guy. And basically, I actually became a colorist there because I had got a bit bored of cutting hair and I almost gave up hairdressing, actually, because I went to live in Italy. Yeah, I went to live in Italy with this big dream of living the Italian dream and it was a disaster. (laughs) And... (laughs) Sorry, Italy. We were like, this is way harder than we thought. (laughs) Yeah, well, I went to Milan with all these plans and dreams when I was 21, and none of them came to fruition (laughs) at all. Um, And I found myself working in a salon in central Milan with doing like one client a day and just trying to learn Italian. And I basically (laughs) learned hairdressing Italian. That's what I learned. Um, And yeah, came home with my tail between my legs. I'm not going to lie. Seven months later, just like, oh God. And then I thought I'm going to give up hairdressing. But I decided after doing a six month stint working for Gap that I missed hairdressing, but I wanted to do something a little different. So I became a hair colorist. And I started working for Tony and Guy in central London. And then I ended up working in their academy teaching. And basically, my editorial career started because I met the photographer Corinne Day, mm. who, for anyone that doesn't know, was uh, she was the photographer that put, helped put Kate Moss on the map, really, and was sort of like the queen of grunge. And basically, yeah, Corinne, I used to colour her hair because we had a mutual friend and I used to sit with her for hours. She hated coming to the salon. So we would be in her or her flat or apartment, as you guys call it, here in London for hours because she had so much hair. And <laughs> we'd just chat and realise we liked the same things. And then she asked me to colour a model's hair for, for a magazine called The Face, mm-hmm. which has just relaunched, actually, just over a year ago. Oh, cool. But yeah, back in, this was in the sort of mid-90s, like 93, 94. And I did this hair colour for her. The girl was brand new. She had mousy brown hair. I bleached it, gave her roots, dyed the ends pink. And <laughs> and basically, Corinne lost the hairdresser who was going to actually do the hair for the shoot the day before the shoot was meant to happen so she called me and she said neil you've done the color do you want to come and do the hair for the shoot and of course i was like <gasps> i can't take you know it's a weekend <laughs> i can't take the day off work and she was like call in sick you'll be fine so i did and i committed oh, the, to the, the good old call in sick trick you remember that yeah, right <laughs> and it, well, i don't you know with social media you can't do that no you no. can't do that anymore. <laughs> you can't Not call in sick all. and do a better job Right. You can't get a letter from your mom or anything. So I'm not coming, but I, I committed the cardinal sin and called in sick on a Saturday. 
And by oh. the way, any any hairdressers that are listening, I don't recommend it. But <laughs> I, yeah, so I did, and I did the shoot, and I just kind of saw it as I was helping a friend out. Really, didn't really think about where you know as a career move necessarily. And three months later, the shoot was published. It was like a ten-page shoot in the Face magazine, and we did this one picture where I put her hair into like a big mohawk. And with the pink ends. And I guess uh, I, somebody said to me, you kind of invented dip dye, Neil. I was like, I don't know. I, I've never <laughs> If I've anybody's never wondering where to... that came from, it was yeah, an accident. I've ne- <laughs> well, I've never tried to claim it, I'll be honest with you. It's not my thing. But um, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a hairstylist here in London who did dip dyeing started dip dyeing a few years ago and everyone was like and she said that she used that picture as an inspiration. So I was like, okay, I'll take that. Um <laughs> like, but, that yeah, me. and that was basically how my career started. So basically the shoot came out, was published three months later. I didn't tell anybody about it. They credited the hair This is by how me. I know it's you're British. Really? You're Why? like, I didn't take any credit for the dip dyeing. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone that I was on a massive photo shoot. This is, an American would be like, oh my God. <laughs> it would have been everywhere. It would have been, the American would have exaggerated and talked about all these things that they did. So it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I've always said you guys invented superstars. We just invented kind of people that might be, become a star. <laughs> I love that. We're always so apologetic about everything we do. But yeah, I. Um, so the shoot came out and of course everybody saw it. The people at Tony and Guy were calling me going, what, hang on, what's this? Have they made a mistake? Da, 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 da. And I was like, well, no, I did do it. But anyway, the, <laughs> the big turning point of that for me was that somebody at Italian Vogue saw the shoot and they loved the pink ends. And I got this phone call at the salon a couple of weekends after it was published on the shelves asking if I would go to Milan and do a shoot for Italian Vogue. Oh my God. You went back to Italy. <laughs> is this going back to Italy or is this how you started? Well, no, this was going back. So oh, okay. I'd, I'd already come back from Milan by then. So it was kind of weird. And, and I actually <laughs> thought the phone call was a joke. I'll be honest with you. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was a friend of mine calling up to wind me up. And the receptionist was like, there's somebody on the phone from Italian Vogue. And I actually answered the phone and said, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I said, who the fuck's this? <laughs> Oh, I love it. It was the bookings editor of Italian Vogue. Oh, my (laughs) God. Yeah, and then when she said, you know, we see your pictures, and I just went, I actually said, stop fucking winding me up, I'm really busy. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't believe it. Oh, my God. Wow. Anyway. That's good stuff. The lady convinced me (laughs) she was real. That's really how you started in editorial. Mm. It was kind of just... Yeah. You started and like that, a lot of people started, which was we don't we lost our hairdresser. We yeah. and, and the photographer knows so you or someone knows you, and I feel like that's how yeah. a lot of us. I can't of, tell you how many jobs I got because of that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I literally like. Yeah, you're the last resort, but it was also in America. We actually poisoned the other hairdresser, but it wasn't. <laughs> like, oh, I, she think, said I think it, that goes sorry. on. <laughs> that happens here more now, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not the 90s anymore. <laughs> she came That's... down with a hit by a car. I don't yeah, know exactly. what. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back to Milan for, I'm assuming, mm. for this shoot. Yeah, for Italian Vogue. That's amazing. And I, funnily enough, met the lovely, sadly, passed away Stella Tennant. Wow. Um, it was one of, not her first shoot, she'd done about four or five, but... 
I, yeah, she was one of the models on the shoot and we became friends and because she sort of realized that I was so like a deer in the headlights of this, it was such a new thing for me. And yeah. yeah, so that was that. And then the next thing I knew, Corinne booked me to do the Mew Mew campaign, which was my first ever advertising job. That's amazing. So they were my first three jobs. So I guess really when you think about it, it was, I was very, very lucky, had some amazing opportunities. Um, like I said, I was a little bit sort of naive about it, really. People kept saying to me, oh, you've got the you campaign, you're working for Prada. And I was a bit like, am I? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you <laughs> knew was so new then. So yeah. I knew Prada. When I was doing editorial stuff, when I first came to New York, it was kind of the same thing. It was a little bit like, I didn't know every designer. I didn't know every reference. I didn't know every... References were so huge. I and I always was. felt like an idiot when they were mm. like, oh, that's, you know... That's product 1995. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I have to like go Google it. You know, like I just mm. wasn't mm. prepared for those types of things. And then I always kind of wondered how do they reference that? And then as you do more work, you're, you just kind of becomes your map of creativity, yeah. which mm-hmm. was really yeah. interesting to me. Well, I was lucky because Corinne was my, became my mentor, really. Instead of assisting another hairstylist, she sort of mentored me because I was, I said to her, I feel like, you know, I've had these amazing opportunities, but I don't know if I'm ready. And she said, you know what, Nilly, it's just, you just need to get used to being on a set and and knowing what to look for when a picture's been taken. And mm-hmm. she said, so what I would say to you is, is listen, you could jump in head first because everybody suddenly wants to work with you, but why don't you just hold back for a bit, work with me, she probably did that a little bit for herself as well, bless her. <laughs> but she was like, you know, and, and just kind of take it slowly. So I did that for about a year and a half with her. So where I worked mainly with her and not really anybody else after those shoots in the beginning. Interesting. And actually it was a really good training ground for me. And she taught me a lot about referencing and what to look for. So obviously we had the internet, but it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't Google somebody and find a million pictures you about them. You could speak out loud and get information. No, you had to go and, you know, you had to go to uh, get books. You had to go to exhibitions. You actually had to physically go and look for stuff. Remember encyclopedias? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. Do they exist anymore? <laughs> no, that's how we got information. We were just okay with that. We were like, oh, it's yeah. not in there. I guess we'll never know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have last year's edition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I grew up in a southern town, so I'm not as old as I'm making myself sound, but we didn't have technology in that small little farm area. <laughs> it didn't make its way to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am as old as I sound. So fortunately, I do remember no no phones and no internet. So, <laughs> so oh gosh. Neil, you have this podcast in bed with Neil Moody. How did that go listen? Yeah, everyone, everyone needs should to go, go listen. listen. And but I, I think to give our audience a glimpse into what that looks like or why it started, mm. where did it come from? Ooh, it's a, it's a very roundabout story, unfortunately. I'll try and keep it short as much as I can. Um, <laughs> because obviously once my career took off and everything, I, I was an ambassador for different brands. So like Aveda, Bumble and Bumble, which I did for, you know, a few years with those. Then I created my own brand with my ex-business partner, and we had a salon, we had product line, we had electrical tools, and they launched in 2008 initially. That was when we first started launching things. Mm. And when that first happened, I remember our PR was like, Neil, you need to PR yourself more. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, you're not really 
you're out there because I think had Instagram started then I don't think it had had it but um I don't until like 2012 started. is when it took off because I remember yeah, we had right. just started working mm. for Aveda and all our students had it and I was like do I need to do this and yeah obviously well, I remember yeah I, I had Facebook and I had Twitter but I just used them to talk to friends you know mm-hmm. what I mean I never mm. saw it as a business thing and so I sort of chatted with them and said you know they were like you know have you thought about starting a blog and I said no but I can do if you want if you think it'd be a good idea and they just said well it would just be good to generate interest in you as a person for PR point of view and blah blah and I said but you know what I just don't want to write about hair every day Mm -hmm. to me that I find I'd find that boring and I think other people would find that boring too and they were like well put some ideas together and tell us what you're thinking so of course, I came up with all these bonkers ideas, which they sort of looked and went, okay, maybe some of them will work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so that started off as the first thing that I did was the blog, which was obviously written. But I came up with one of the ideas was to interview people that I worked with. So like models, things like that. So I, by the time I'd got it all up and running and going and everything, I started interviewing makeup artists that I worked with, just like written Q&As. Mm-hmm. And I would send them the questions, luckily, because I knew everybody from work, they were happy to do that. And then I started getting models to do it. So I had like Cara Delevingne and Georgia May Jagger. They did one together for That's me, so which cool. was hilarious I actually went and met them and recorded it try transcripting that after it's done and (laughs) and then yeah and then I did a few others and they just deemed to be quite popular so moving on to 20 2018 when I resigned from Windler Moody I and obviously by then we'd got Instagram and everything so and Windler Moody had its own website by that point but when I resigned, I decided to rebrand everything back as Neil Moody myself. And and I'd started listening to podcasts, the odd podcast. And I thought, hmm, I quite fancy doing this, but I didn't really know what to do. And actually, that's, funny enough, it's a really good transition into the mental health thing, because I then got invited to be on a podcast by my friend's husband, who was hosting a podcast about men's raising awareness for men's mental health. And I saw that she posted something that he was starting this podcast called Man Talk. And she basically, I contacted her and said, listen, you don't really know, but I have a bit of a story background Mm -hmm. about my mental health issues and stuff. And I feel like at the age of 50, I'm happy to sort of talk about them now if it's going to help even just one person. Yeah. She got back to me within 20 minutes. She was like, oh, my God, I've told Jamie he'd love to interview you because he wants to interview lots of different people from different walks of life. And so Jamie contacted me and he came to my flat here in London and he interviewed me. And it was the first time I had ever really opened up about my mental health issues, like publicly, I guess. And like I said, I didn't really do it to sort of think, oh, God, you know, everyone's going to be like, oh, well done, Neil. I didn't do it for that. I just did it because I thought I thought what he was doing was really great. And it was about time that people were much more aware that these issues exist, especially for men. And so I did it. And when it came out, I just had a really great response. You know, lots of, because obviously I posted it on Instagram and on my social media and people just were like, oh my God, Neil, this was amazing. You know, it's so great that you opened up. It's really helped me, blah, 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 blah. And Jamie contacted me and said, Neil, you know what? It was your podcast people really liked. And he said, I think you should do your own podcast. I was like, really? And he went, yeah. And I said, well, I don't quite know what to do about it. And he said, well, look, I'll come to see me. And he basically helped me set it all up. 
And yeah, and that's how my podcast started. But what I decided to do was pick up the old Q&A thing that I'd been doing written Mm -hmm. before and turn it into an audio and go back to interviewing people that I worked with because I thought they're going to be the best people I have a conversation with, people that I know. And also they know me really well. So because I thought I I wanted the conversations to be quite candid and easy, not not too formulate sort of Q&A how I'd done it written before. And so, yeah, and my premise as well was, was if I couldn't get to meet the people in person, then we would do it how we're doing it. I would see you on video and it would be recorded. So we were actually having a face-to-face conversation and we just felt like, it felt like friends chatting. But my one premise behind it was, was that the people that I interviewed had to be entrepreneurial. So whilst they have their job that they do, say makeup, styling or whatever, they also have to have another thing going on. Because I wanted the podcast to be inspiring for people too, not just on a professional fashion beauty level, but just in terms of, look, you can go out and do all these other things if you want to. You can create your own business. (laughs) You can create your own business, you know, and you don't have to just be pinholed into one box. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't work for creative people. No. More dynamic. Totally. And I think a lot of people get nervous to do that. Whereas obviously things are getting easier now because everyone's sort of like trying different things. But I know a lot of people, especially more my generation who are a little older, who are a bit nervous. They're a little bit like, oh God, I don't want to get out there too much. So that was the premise. And yeah, I launched it and it just did really, really well, much better than I ever imagined. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, you do these things you know, I wasn't thinking about what the outcome would be. I just thought, well, if people listened and they really liked it. And then, yeah, and I didn't even know that a podcast chart existed, you know, charts. <laughs> and um, somebody said to me, have you had a look to see where it is in the podcast charts? And I was like, no. And then when I looked on the UK fashion and beauty section i was in the top 10 <laughs> oh wow you're like oh my gosh <laughs> that's yeah. amazing so it really took me by surprise because like i said i didn't even know that existed as a thing i don't even know where we are i don't either we need to look at that too i don't know <laughs> have a look there's a, there's a <laughs> thing called chartable which tells and it tells you about every country like oh, how wow. many listens you've got where you are in the charts where you were you can see all the details yeah and all right, we're um, gonna look at that yeah. So, of course, I thought, oh, well, I guess I'll do another series then. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I did. So I did a second series. and I But I branched out a bit with that. Whilst I still did people from fashion and beauty, I also, through doing Man Talk, I also met a few people who sort of are like mental health campaigners and activists. And so I interviewed some of those as well because I thought I don't want to just be, again, pigeonholed into this, like, I only interview fashion and beauty people because I do feel very strongly about raising awareness for mental health. And, you know, I'm a great believer in the more it's spoken about, the less of a stigma there will be. Absolutely. I don't think people talk about it enough. No. When did your journey or struggle with mental health start? For most of us, it usually starts way earlier than I think we even realize. I would say I started to know I was having what I now know is anxiety attacks when I was about 13, 14. Yeah. But I didn't really know what they were. And I just assumed I was having a funny turn. <laughs> right. Um, for want of a better word. <laughs> and around that age was when they started. And I think some of it now, when I look back, is probably due to the fact that I wasn't bullied physically, but I was bullied mentally at school, uh, verbally. Is it mentally or verbally? Yeah. Verbally, I was bullied at mm-hmm. school. It's um, both. 
Yeah, is it both? I guess it, it is, is both, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it felt like both. And I think, you know, that affected me. I was just trying to be me, trying to get on with being me, which, as we know, at that age is not easy anyway, because we're all trying to find out who we are. But yeah, that's when it really started. And then they sort of waned when I left school, when I was 16, and I started my apprenticeship, because I suddenly was in this world of hairdressing where... I still had wasn't openly gay at that point, and I didn't really know if I was or I wasn't. But at 16, I felt like I'd walked into a world that accepted me for being me, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was no judgment. And so I think that's why they waned and disappeared for a while. And then I moved to London when I was 18, and they started to manifest again when I was about 19. And I would be taking the the tube as we call it here to work and I would have one on the tube and I would have to get off and just be and I they were stronger than I'd had them before and again I was still a bit unaware of what they really were but again you I no think, one to talk to about it you're like what you know no. like I feel like everybody feels so isolated when they're having those moments of you know non-clarity like they're they're, totally. they're just confused yeah. And you're just like, am I cluster? Is it just because I'm claustrophobic and I'm on the tube or mm-hmm. is it because I'm not having a good time with my partner at that point? You know, mm-hmm. we were breaking up. We'd moved to London together when we were both like 17. And we were at that point where we were breaking up. I felt very alone in London because him and I were so together at that age. We didn't really make that many friends to begin with. And so I think that's why they started to manifest again. And then eventually, I guess, as him and I broke up and I started to find my footing again, they sort of waned and disappeared. And then they really came with a massive bang and punch in the face, kicking kicking the How ghoulies, as we say here, um, <laughs> when I was 30. And that's when they completely floored me. What was your experience trying to get help or reaching out for help? I guess I had, I suppose you could say, a sort of mini breakdown. when I was about 30 and I'd obviously read a bit more about anxiety and things like that it was becoming a bit more of a topic that people were starting to talk about because this was what we're talking 23 years ago Mm. and I basically started to have these anxiety attacks but in a way where they were so strong that I didn't know where I was I had no I would be walking down the street and suddenly I would lose sense of where I actually was. Um, I couldn't just make head or tail of things. I was so desensitized and, you know, from everything. And I remember going home and just sitting, I'd been to have a massage actually. And in the massage, I kind of shot up out the seat. My friend was doing the massage for me and she hit this point in my back. And I remember just shooting up out the seat. She went, are you okay? And I went, no, I feel really weird. She didn't finish the massage. She gave me rescue remedy in a glass and some water. And I went home and I just remember feeling so disorientated. And I basically then sat in my flat in London for about four or five days, not knowing what the hell was going on. I was too scared to go out. I suddenly became very agoraphobic. And I also sort of, I guess, lost track of time. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't sleep for about four days, four nights. And which obviously that then escalates everything to make it worse. And what actually was a great thing was two of my very close friends came to see me again like I said this was kind of a bit before 
you know, cell phones existed. Um, they were starting to appear, but we didn't, I didn't have one, but my friends were calling me on my landline and I was like, listen, I'm having a really weird time. And they came to get me and they just said to me, Neil, we think you need to go and see somebody. And so they came with me to see my doctor, got an appointment with my doctor. And luckily for me, my doctor, his wife was a client of mine and she's actually a therapist. And he said to me, look, I think you're suffering really badly from anxiety, but I think there's also some mild depression involved, but I want to send you to a psychiatrist. I think you also need to start having some kind of therapy. And that was when I became really aware that there was help out there. When I sort of, like I said, my friends took me to get medical help, basically. I, when I was younger, I had kind of a tumultuous childhood. The universe is interesting. I didn't have the bullying. I had the crazy parent. It's Mm. like you get, you get one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're really unlucky, unfortunately, some people get all of it. But I, Mm. I think that when I was younger, I, when I turned 18, I was having panic attacks. I'd be doing hair and I would flush. I would just turn red. And there were some days. I feel like where I'm I would, having a stroke. That's what it feels like. You're I, like, I'm dying right there now. There was one day I was working on a client and it kind of like you shot up out of the massage uh, table. I kind of just like froze and ran to my car and drove myself to the ER. And everyone was like, what? Where did you? Like, I couldn't even explain what was happening other than my body mm-hmm. was telling me, you have to go. You need some, you need help. I didn't know what mm-hmm. that meant. And mm-hmm. I remember going to the ER and then sending me to a psychiatrist and then just kind of going immediately on anti-anxieties like Ativan and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it, and it helped me get through the day, but it wasn't, it wasn't actually until recently that someone said anxiety is one of the first signs of depression. Cause mm-hmm. I was someone who's like, I don't have depression. I go to work. I, sad. I get up. <laughs> I, yeah. I go about my day. I just have these mental breakdowns. And so <laughs> and the, and the therapist that I was talking to was like, it's normal. Like, yes, that is anxiety, but anxiety is a sign of depression. And I, I always thought they were separate from each other. Yeah. You know, in my head, someone with anxiety was someone who was, you know, anxious and there was a lot going on mm. and, and someone with depression wasn't moving at all. Mm. And so it was just recently, probably in the last year that I was like, oh, let's work on your depression as well as your anxiety. And it was very mm. hard to admit that I had depression because I didn't mm. feel the movie version mm-hmm. of depression. Yeah. It's funny because I was kind of the same. I never thought about depression, even though my father, when I was young, had had a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. and was ill for quite a long time and at home. And he was so ill for a while, he wasn't really present. My mother looked after myself and my sister and he just kind of sat in the corner in the room. And it wasn't until the psychiatrist said to me, because I, I remember going to see him. And, and the word, even the word psychiatrist freaked me out, I'll be honest with you. I don't know about you. but it, maybe, Because we've been taught like, that if you are seeing a psychiatrist, you're a crazy really? person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I remember loving my psychiatrist because he, <laughs> I remember walking in and he had like this really bright coloured suit on and a dicky bow with polka dots on. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, he's fabulous. I you're love You're my him. person. <laughs> And I was like, okay, he's a bit bonkers too, so we're fine. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I sat down with him, and I was with him for two hours. And yeah, he actually said to me, Neil, I, you're actually suffering from mild depression as well. Mm-hmm. Having talked to you, and you know, spoken about the things that have happened and why this is manifested. 
And of course, he was like, how do you feel about that? And I remember bursting into tears because I said, oh, God, my father had a nervous breakdown and I'm worried I'm going to end up the same way. You know, he tried to commit suicide twice and blah, 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 because... You know, it happened to him in the 70s. There was a lot less help. Medication wasn't great. My father had a massive allergic reaction to the medication they put him on. Oh, and that's yeah. why he tried to commit suicide because he couldn't handle, he was having hallucinations. I was just like, I just think I'm going to end up like him, you know? And amazingly, my psychiatrist, Robin, said to me, listen, Neil, first off, you are not him. You're only a product of him. And he said, but secondly, we're at a different time, you know, in the world. Things have changed. Yes, you're going to be, you're being put onto medication, but medication is much more sophisticated now. And actually, there's a lot of things we can do to help you. And he actually asked me to go and do cognitive therapy as well, because he said, "I think you've lost your way in your life of what what you're doing." He said, "You've become very successful as a hairdresser, and you know, in the editorial world." He said, "But you're actually not coping with it very well." And so he was like, I think you feel like you've lost control of that. And that was actually one of the problems was that I'd, I felt like I'd lost control of my work. It was even mm-hmm. though on paper, it looked amazing. Everyone was like, oh, you're doing great. You're doing Vogue. You're in, you know, I'd moved to New York. I was doing W. I was doing all these amazing editorials, but I felt like shit. Yeah. <laughs> Living yeah. the dream, and, but internally destructive. Yeah. And it wasn't, I felt like shit because I was on the shoots. I just didn't feel right. And I realized that I was being pulled from left to right by agents and everything else. And yeah. I just was very, I suddenly didn't feel like I had any control over my life anymore it was like right you're going here you're on this plane you're going there you're on that plane oh by the way when you've done that go to the airport and then you're going here and of course when it happens like that you become so nervous that it's all going to disappear that you just say well i've just got to do as much as i can yeah and one of the main things for me was they said he said to me you need to learn to say no he said you don't you've forgotten how to say no or i don't want to do that or i don't want to go there well, we're also just, in an industry that just trains you that you have to always be available. You have to always mm-hmm. take the opportunities. Like you have to always be on and ready. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have anxiety or depression or any any mental illness in any capacity, that just mm. really is an s- abusive technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Totally. And you know, I I don't want to sit here and blame my agents who were my agents at the time because it's but definitely it's their not their fault. But it is their fault. <laughs> no, I hope they, I, if they're listening, I still love you guys. But that's also the old school industry way of doing things too. Yeah. It's very mm. abusive. Yeah. And I think that is shifting. It's not there yet, but it's definitely shifting. Well, I will say in their defense, they were absolutely amazing when this happened and they supported me through the whole thing. And I think as well, I mean, I, I don't know whether... I definitely think my agent in London more realised that we're not all the same. And while some people just can keep going and running and blah, 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 other people are a bit more delicate, which Mm -hmm. was people like me, you know what I mean? And yeah, it was, I mean, I remember her saying to me, this is my old agent, I'm with a different agency now, but she said to me, Neil, I learned a lot from what happened to you and how we dealt with it and how you dealt with it and how you, you know, after being off work for four or five months almost, that when you came back, how you handled it completely different. You know, I had a different approach to my career. And my career didn't it didn't end. I didn't yeah. throw it all down the drain. Well, that's you know? the fear, it I was, think, for most people is that when you stop, it's going to all mm, fall it's apart. Gone. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think that's one thing I'd love to say on here is that, you know, if you take a few months out, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. If COVID showed us anything... <laughs> 
Well, we can take so. months off and nothing. Was, we're we're well, still going to have business. Forced, right? We were forced to do that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but then, you know, mental health forced me to take time off too. Yeah. It's, it really wasn't the end of my career by a long mm-hmm. shot. Um, I used and to think actually, that like being on medicine was like, if I was on medicine, that it meant that I would lose my business because I was, I was weak or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. And I think I remember I was, I was diagnosed with OCD in when I was 28. And I remember mm. being shocked when they told me the news because I'd only seen what OCD looked like on the television, like, mm-hmm. and they were extreme cases. Right. And so then I realized like all these things that I had been doing to deal with crippling anxiety were the OCD, like trying to find control. And those were the ticks. And like, I remember even one time David and I were walking down the street and I was not stepping on cracks. And he's like, are you anxious right now? And I was like, incredibly <laughs> anxious, you know? And that was one of my ticks is I would not step on cracks when I was walking when I was having like an anxiety attack. And, and mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that that was not normal. Um, and mm-hmm. now that I'm on medication, the ticks haven't gone away because it's, it's a, it's a mental thing, but they're not stemmed with complete debilitating anxiety. And so I'm able to just check the door once and walk away, you know, or, or something like that versus being, being stuck. And I think David's on um, medication as well. And we're, we're big advocates of that and that it doesn't mean you're weak. And sometimes you need these things to be able to function, you know, I've got to be honest. I, don't know how I made it throughout life without <laughs> medication. I don't know how I made and it. And spiritual tools. We still do spiritual tools yeah. as well in therapy. But yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I had a lot of people suggesting before I got on medication. I the reason I got on medication is I had a mental COVID kind of triggered a mental breakdown for me mm-hmm. to where I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping. And again, I didn't feel depressed. I just felt really anxious. And mm. I was like losing weight really quickly. And then my anxiety is a little more hypochondriosis where it's like, <laughs> oh, I must have cancer. Like that's why I'm mm. losing weight. Or I must, I'm going to die of some illness. Like mine would turn to like, there's something else wrong with you. It's not just anxiety. It's not just your yeah. mental health. And I would, I would spend a lot of time and money and energy and trying to find other physical, tangible reasons why something was wrong. Mm, mm. And it always ends up being my mental state. And I don't know if people realize for all the people out there that are really against medication or are afraid of medication, I think a lot of people were asking or suggesting that I try to change my diet and Mm -hmm. try to try to change this. And it's like, I can't change my diet when I'm not eating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I need to, I need to be able to eat first. And so I think a lot of people try to do natural things first, but my experience are very helpful, but sometimes you need that support so that you can do the other things that are better for your exactly. body. And it's just not, if one more person tells me to meditate, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> like just meditate. No, just I, meditate, can't. Do you? I can't I'm meditate like, unless I'm on medicine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Once you yeah. have that medicine or once you have something chemical like that to help you, I think mm. then you can start doing those other things. So it's sometimes medicine first. And I think people forget that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my take on it is, is that medicine is what helped me. I was put onto Prozac first and then eventually switched over to another one a few years later, which my doctor decided would be better for me. I think it's, I, I don't know, it's got a different name in America, but here it's called Escitalopram. And Lexapro. Yeah, Lexapro, that's it. I think that for me, it helped to normalize me, definitely. Mm -hmm. But I realized as well, which, and thank God my psychiatrist and my doctor were really heavy on this, was that 
it doesn't solve the problem. It mm-hmm. basically, it just helps you to then deal with the problem. And one of the things that I that's always say That's the biggest people, trick. You have to focus on solving it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I always say to people when they say to me, oh, God, you know, your mental health. Da, 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 da. I would say, listen, you can't just take a tablet and expect it all to go away. Mm-hmm. Right. The medication is the beginning of it. And then you've kind of got to go and do some work and find out why it started in the first place. Obviously, certain things happen because, I mean, my psychiatrist said to me, he was like, Neil, I really believe you have a chemical imbalance. And what the tablets do is normalize and stabilize that out. And so that's why I'm still on them 23 years later. And, you know, I don't have an issue with that. I'm on a lower dose now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I've learned to deal with it better. But the other thing I would say is, is that, my anxiety hasn't just disappeared. I liken it to a dimmer switch. It's like, mm. it turns it, but it's got its own uh, fingers on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it turns itself <laughs> up and turns itself down as and when it feels. It doesn't go away. You can't switch it off. Mm. And I think that's the other thing. A lot of people expect a quick fix and it's going to be all over within a couple of weeks of the tablets kicking in, but it isn't. And I'm talking about alternative stuff as well. I've done loads. I mean, I had acupuncture for years. I've done yoga. I do meditate. Sorry, don't. <laughs> I do, but not every day. Not going to lie. <laughs> I just, I just do it when I feel I need to. But my question is, I mean? did you meditate before medicine? No, exactly. Yeah. That's I meditate that's now. My that point. I'm that's on my point. But I did do yoga. I, I okay. Funnily enough, talking about my going back to my father, that's how he recovered in the 70s. Wow. So I was actually introduced to yoga at a really young age. I was about 10 at the time and when my father got ill. And because he reacted so badly to the medication, he was like, I'm not taking any more. And somebody, I can't remember, like a neighbour, recommended yoga to him. And that was actually how he got better. But, that's amazing. You know, my, I would say my father, again, he never... I've always said my father was slightly more of a glass half empty than a glass half full kind of man. Mm. Um, I mean, he's no longer with us, sadly, but it was, he definitely was aired on that sort of negative side. And even though yoga was what helped him recover, I don't think he ever really got back to where he was before. You know what I mean? And he had bouts of depression as time went on, but he used the yoga and the breathing and all that kind of stuff to help him through it. That was just what worked for him. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I also know a few people that are sort of micro dosing and things at the moment. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that. Yeah, somebody I know had a bit of a, I mean, and I love them to death, but they were kind of questioning, why was I medication? Why didn't I microdose? And I was like, listen, do whatever you have to do to work. It's all medication. In a it's way, yeah. medication. <laughs> well, that's what I said. I'm only on 10 milligrams, so I consider it. I'm microdosing on what I have. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Microdosing so, on, on Lexapro and Prozac. and <laughs> Right? Go figure. And also, there's a lot more research done on that than there is on the other stuff. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what I prefer to go with, but I don't condemn anybody for doing that. You know, if it works, it works, yeah. then great. But Absolutely. I do, it does annoy me Just when people... Just do something that will help Yeah. You. I hate to say, but it does annoy me a bit when people have that argument against like, oh, I'd much rather do it naturally versus I don't want to take medication. You know what? I was trying natural things and they weren't working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like and they might work for some for people. 16 years and it wasn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, you know, medication worked for me. Thank you very much. I'm very happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I love that. I think really just, I hope that people that are listening that are struggling, because I know especially during the pandemic, we do a lot of co- coaching and consulting and a lot of the issues in business right now are mentally debilitating. Yep. They're not just 
financially debilitating or physically. Mm. It's all of it. And I've had so many people that are like, I don't want to go on medication, but I can't function. And it's all this stigma around what medication means. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll ever get to a place where there isn't one, but when it works for you, the stigma for yourself disappears. I mean, like immediately you're like, oh, this Mm. is not what I thought. My (laughs) my biggest fear was I was going to lose my creativity, that I was going to lose my drive to, you know, be Mm. who I am. I would just be a ghost of myself. Me too. And none of that happened. Yeah. In fact, yeah. the opposite happened. I felt more creative and I felt more awake and I felt more, you know, focused I on what I wanted to do. I call it being on the beach. Do. I feel like I'm just on <laughs> a, a beach. Yeah. But but not in like a super relaxed way. Just like mm. my my mind is not Well, it's better than riddled. the tsunami that was yes, happening it's not, before. <laughs> not right? like, I'm just like yeah. a creative being on the beach. Like that's how Mine I was a, I had like a cyclops going around me. <laughs> that's what it felt like. You know, so I, just, I just want to be back on the ground again. But, you know, one of the things I will say talking about this as well is, is that my psychiatrist said something to me once, which I'd really like to share with everybody that's listening. About two years down the line of taking medication, I suddenly had this like, I don't want to be on medication anymore. I'm done. I don't want to, you know what I mean? I had a real thing. And I went to see him and I went, I'm coming off. And he went, why? And I was sort of said to him, I don't want to be on tablets. Da, 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 da. And he said to me, Neil, if you had a heart condition or a lung condition, and I was the doctor that looked after that and said, you take this medication because it's going to make you better. What would you do? And I said, well, I'll take it. He said, so what's different about this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if, I had to say he floored me because I wasn't. Your brain expecting is an organ. That. <laughs> well, that, and that's exactly what he said. Your brain is an organ, and he said it's only the stigma that's attached around this subject that makes people say what you just said or behave the way they do about it. And yeah. he said it's just another medical condition that people need to understand and actually realise that you can get help. He said. There are people who've been on heart medication for donkey's years mm-hmm. and their heart functions fine and they're normal. So why can't we do it with this? He said, you've been so much better since you started taking this medication. So why the hell do you want to disturb that? Mm-hmm. Right. And all of us here are part of the LGBTQ family. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, stigma is something that we're just, it's yep. just part of our life. And I think medication yeah. When you have another stigma, it just kind of adds to that narrative that like something's wrong with you. You're different. Like everything about you is different. This is different. This is, and I, Mm. and I think that weighs on us as a community a little bit of like, here's another thing that makes me look and feel and suffer differently than the heteronormative counterparts that are around me. Yeah, Not that, you know, and I don't think we think about that a lot, but that really does. It just keeps adding to that story that we're different. Mm-hmm. We're different. We're different. We're different. So, Neil, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. I wish I we know. could have. Well, I maybe we do can another be on one. your podcast. Yes. But yes. Come and be talking. But mm. if you were to leave everybody with some words of advice, I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> but what would you, you know, people that are listening that maybe are suffering themselves or are kind of struggling with some mental health of their own, Mm. what would you want to say to them? I think first, talk. Talk to somebody, anybody. Keeping it to yourself is the worst thing because you're just in your own head all the time and that can absolutely drive you crazy. I know I drove myself crazy with it. I think once you start talking and sharing, that's when you'll feel that it starts easing off a little bit. Even just... 
you know, whether it's a friend, whether it's medical help, whatever, whichever way it is, talk about it. And also believe that it won't last forever and that it's fixable and that you can still have a career and be successful with this condition, whatever it is, it might end up being, whether it's anxiety, mild depression, all those kind of things. Don't let that stop you from having a career. But more importantly, if you're feeling it and you don't know what to do about it, talk. It's mm-hmm. all about sharing. And then that's that's one step in the right direction for me. I love that's that. And advice. hopefully this podcast can be a step for some people as yeah. well. Yeah. Hopefully. Reach out I to mean, us, to Neil, reach out to anybody. Just start conversating. Hey, Com- DM me whatever you want to do. I, I, I'm happy <laughs> to, ch- I can chat for Britain. So I'm happy to talk <laughs> to anyone that will listen to me. And, <laughs> and how do people, how can people find you on Instagram and connect with you there? Just Neil Moody. Moody with an IE, which people always get wrong. So don't <laughs> look for the Moody with a Y. Because there is a hairdresser in Sydney called Neil Moody, but his name ends with a Y. Mine's mm. IE. And okay. yeah, and then my podcast, I always, I have Instagram with the podcast, which is In Bed with Neil Moody. But that's also, my podcast is everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, SoundCloud. It's everywhere. Those, it's everywhere. Spotify. It. Yeah. So yeah, I don't use that Instagram so much. So the main one, if anybody wants to get in touch, my Neil Moody one. Perfect. All right, Neil, it was great having you on. And we will have you again, because I think there's more to this conversation. Oh, guys, I would love to come on again. Um, Will you please come on mine? Because I've got to get my third series (laughs) running. I've I've got a couple in the bag, but unlike you, I just do them in series because I have to do it when I have time. So it's good to just kind of come in and yeah, I'd love to have you on. So we'll figure that out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will talk to you very soon then. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks, Neil. Next time on Destroy the Hairdresser, the podcast. I wish I would have fucked up a lot more when I was younger. Me too. (laughs) Because like now it's not More than I already did. (laughs) People are now looking at you like, you should know better. So if you're a younger stylist. Go fuck shit up. Just just, rock it up. Just don't mess it up. 